From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Despite various health benefits of moderate alcohol consumption, there is a fine line before the U-shaped curve brings on detrimental inflammatory effects from alcohol in the liver and other major organs. The research shows that chronic liver inflammation is a catalyst for liver fibrosis and other irreversible forms of end-stage liver disease. For her entire career, Dr. Jonji Sabo has worked across the translational spectrum to better understand and improve treatment for this deadly condition. Jonji Sabo is the Chief Academic Officer at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Zabo, thank you for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Thank you, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be here today. You're the Chief Academic Officer at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, um, and you're also a researcher, and your research is focused on the health impacts of alcohol. How did you become interested in this area? So, yes, I'm a Chief Academic Officer, which means an administrative uh, opportunity to increase the research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, but I, I'm personally very much invested in this as a, as a scientist myself. I was able to bring my laboratory here to BIDMC and our lab is interested in the health effect of alcohol, but particularly the effect of alcohol on the, on the liver with relation to alcoholic liver disease and alcoholic hepatitis. Um, for many years, uh, at the beginning of my career, I studied the effects of alcohol on the immune system that uh, turns out to be fairly substantial, um, particularly excessive uh, drinking with binge drinking or chronic alcohol use uh, has uh, different uh, subclinical immunosuppressive effects on on the immune system and immune responses in general. Um, we also uh, found out from our studies over time that uh, binge drinking as well as uh, sustained larger amount of alcohol consumption actually increases inflammation throughout the entire body. And not only in the liver, but many other organs are affected, including the brain. And, and that chronic alcohol use actually uh, induces neuroinflammation that is, is believed to contribute to some of the addictive components of alcohol and also to alcohol-related kind of uh, cognitive defects. Hmm. And you mentioned you began studying alcohol in the immune system. And I wanted to ask you about your training. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your path to research, because it was not the traditional research path that most people are familiar with. Yes, yeah, so I'm a foreign medical graduate. I, I went to medical school in Hungary. And uh, during medical school, I became very much interested in, in research. In fact, I had opportunities to do some research as a medical student, and that was mostly focused on, on immune uh, functions and particularly 
uh, innate immune monocyte and neutrophil functions in, in autoimmune diseases, in systemic lupus, and also in, in rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, that uh, kind of uh, increased and, and, and triggered my passion for research. And after finishing medical school, I, it was clear to me that I wanted to be a physician scientist. And uh, in order to get more research opportunities, I actually accepted a, a postdoctoral position at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, uh, less than a year after finishing medical school in Hungary. So moved to UMass to pursue research that was related to uh, immunosuppression and immunosuppression caused by um, trauma and major surgeries. And uh, that, that um, discovery and, and that, that postdoctoral fellowship uh, certainly helped me to um, continue on my research training and also to launch my independent research. Mm -hmm. And during your postdoc, your mentor, you were looking for something, a research project, a sort of research focus, and your mentor suggested studying the effect of alcohol on the immune system of people with traumatic injuries. Um, can you tell us about how your mentor influenced your research for your postdoc and how that continued to influence your future work? Absolutely. So uh, my, my mentor, uh, Carol Miller-Graziano at UMass, was a, an immunologist and she was very much interested in, in cytokines and the role of cytokines in post-trauma immunosuppression. This was back in the very late 80s, early 90s, at the time when some of the uh, cytokines, t uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, interleukin-8 were discovered. So it was actually a very, a very exciting time. And uh, we, we did essentially translational research by studying these various cytokines in patients who were uh, after trauma and trying to correlate clinical outcomes with uh, with uh, uh, differences in these uh, serum cytokine levels, but also mechanistically try to find out what is the source and regulation of these cytokines. So I, I spent uh, about two two and a half years working in this laboratory, publishing papers on this uh, on, in this area, and my mentor became aware of a grant uh, possibility through the National Institute on Alcoholism that uh, essentially was looking for um, new investigations in alcohol-related research. And so it was her idea to, to kind of ask me to look into the potential um, effects of alcohol in these trauma patients. And um, in fact, when we started to sort of sort out patients who were admitted to the emergency room with a bl uh, detectable blood alcohol level compared to those who had no alcohol history, we indeed found that the uh, cytokine profile of these patients and the function of their certain immune functions, particularly monocytes, were different, suggesting that perhaps alcohol has an effect on these, on these functions. And essentially this whole idea and the hypothesis that alcohol may affect immune responses in response to, for example, trauma injury, uh, it became the kind of lead hypothesis in my first grant. And I was very fortunate, I think, to, to be a recipient of a, um, in those days, there was a career development award that provided a 50% support for my salary and allowed me to hire a technician and, and essentially for five years um, establish my own line of research. Hmm. And um, 
you know, the, I mean, r frankly, I personally had some questions that, well, you know, really alcohol, does, does alcohol can really affect, uh, you know, serious immune functions? And as we kind of started to ask these questions scientifically and uh, with rigorous studies, uh, sort of sorted out the various cellular functions, indeed became more and more convinced that, yes, indeed, alcohol has substantial effects on, on immune responses. Mm. And uh, that, that line of investigation became my first R01 um, that uh, launched my future uh, as an independent investigator. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about, more about that first grant and what it was like getting that first grant. Well, it was fantastic uh, because, um, you know, it allowed us to, to really um, ask uh, questions. And I think just the whole idea that uh, and, and the excitement of, of becoming an independent investigator is, is a milestone, I think, in everyone's career. Um, I was also uh, fortunate that um, over time, actually, I was able to um, go back and do a residency and fellowship training. And um, the, um, I did a fellowship training in a, through the American uh, Board of Internal Medicine Physician Scientist Training Pathway that allowed me to spend some time in the laboratory parallel kind of alternating between clinical rotations and, and being in a laboratory. And um, that way, I was really fortunate that I could maintain my research laboratory and do my uh, internal medicine and GI fellowship training over a period of six years. Um, that um, finally led me to hepatology because <laughs> I realized that studying alcohol and uh, having the immunology background and interest in immunology could be a very good uh, uh, sort of merge of fields, bringing immunology knowledge to the liver. Mm. Um, in those days, in the early 2000s, there was very little understood about the role of the immune system and, and the inflammation in, in liver diseases. And um, that exactly became the focus of my, of my next phase of research. And um, in fact, uh, I think that now nobody would question whether inflammation in the liver is, is an incredibly important component to any sort of chronic liver diseases. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we hear about alcohol and inflammation. A lot of times it's there, you hear on the news or in studies about how alcohol reduces inflammation to certain levels. But for work that you've done, you found that there's sort of, there's a tipping point, correct? There's sort of like a point at which there's inflammation reducing effects, but then when you increase alcohol use, you create inflammation. Am I right about that? Well, you are right. So this is why what uh, people refer to as the U-shaped curve uh, related to alcohol, and that's particular alcohol use, and it's particularly uh, true for for the kind of general health effect of alcohol. Mm -hmm. So in many studies, particularly in cardiovascular diseases, but even in in overall kind of uh, survival uh, and, and life expectancy, it has been shown that small amounts of uh, alcohol actually appears to have some beneficial effects. But uh, alcohol use that uh, generally defined as about, um, you know, five drinks a week for men and maybe less uh, for females, um, 
above that is a, a potential health risk. And mm -hmm. I think the, the exact amount of alcohol that is safe or not safe really is hard to tell because it depends on the individual's probably genetic background and other uh, kind of uh, comorbidities. But definitely excessive alcohol use uh, and binge drinking is associated with, with uh, adverse clinical outcomes, whether it's cardiovascular disease, liver disease, or any kind of other actually diseases and, and survival. Hmm. So let's, let's talk about the main focus of your research now, liver disease and inflammation. Um, you mentioned a little bit about the fact that, you know, nowadays there's no question that um, that this is an important area. Um, one area that you study is clinical alcoholic hepatitis, but can you tell us about that and some of the other um, areas you look at in terms of liver disease? Absolutely. So in general, we are interested in, 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 in inflammation in the liver. And uh, the reason for that is because it, it, it is uh, pretty obvious by now that chronic inflammation in any kind of chronic liver disease is is a, a trigger and a force, force, fast forwarding kind of mechanism for um, reaching an end stage liver disease uh, status, which means that the liver in response to this ongoing inflammation uh, develops fibrosis and over time fibrosis becomes cirrhosis, which is kind of an end stage liver disease. Um, studies, uh, particularly from our, some of our and others' previous uh, uh, kind of uh, investigations, revealed that, for example, in chronic hepatitis C infection, um, the inflammation and, and fibrosis actually could be reversed if the initial trigger, such as the hepatitis C virus, is removed. Mm. Um, now, that's true to a certain extent uh, until cirrhosis develops. Once there is this final stage of liver damage, such as cirrhosis, then we believe that that, that might be, in, that is irreversible. But prior to that, there's a long period in chronic liver diseases where sustained inflammation perpetuates the fibrosis and, and drives the continued damage to the liver and fibrosis. Hmm. So there are multiple triggers for this. And um, most recently we are studying two different entities. One is that called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And essentially this is a disease that is um, a result of liver manifestation of the combination of the metabolic syndrome that would include obesity, type two diabetes or insulin, insulin dependence and uh, <clears throat> high blood pressure and high and, and abnormal uh, lipid profile. And, and as you probably um, heard this is a very common entity uh, in the in the Western world, and in fact, mm -hmm. nowadays not only in the Western world, world but pretty much around the entire globe, mm -hmm. with the increased incidence of, of obesity and, and type two diabetes. So this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the liver manifestation of the metabolic syndrome, and in fact, uh, it's it's a it's a very um, it's is the is the most common liver disease nowadays. Wow. Now it's interesting this because. So, the, sorry to interrupt. That, and so, fat, so fatty liver disease, this <laughs> is sort of like a, a lifestyle disease, people eating, it's like related to diet and, 
and physical activity level. It's sort of just like a lifestyle factors that contribute to this. So it's yes and no. Okay. Um, there are certain forms of, of, of this fatty liver disease that could be genetic, mm -hmm. the small percent. And then, also, uh, then it's also known that there are certain genetic predispositions for developing the disease mm -hmm. in the setting of diabetes and, and obesity. But the majority is lifestyle and in fact, uh, changes in lifestyle, losing weight can uh, reverse some of the processes in, in the, this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And, non and, and what we learned is that the fat uh, deposition in the liver itself may not be as detrimental than the uh, too much fat and that can induce and trigger inflammation. Mm. And once there is inflammation on the top of fat in the liver, that is really the critical point where we get concerned about progression of disease. Right. So it's the, the fat around the liver contributes to inflammation, which sets off this kind of chain reaction of... Exactly. And in fact, the fat uh, gets deposited in the liver cells, in the hepatocytes themselves. Hmm. And sometimes that can cause... Uh, uh, essentially death of hepatocytes, a certain type of death pathways are induced that then uh, the, the is damaged and, and dying hepatocytes then can turn on uh, the immune response, yeah. essentially recognizing this, this damaged self as a danger signal to trigger inflammation. So mm. it kind of creates a vicious cycle yeah. that um, could go down over time. And we are talking about decades when the progression of liver disease can happen. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's, so that's the non-alcoholic liver disease. And then you also look at alcoholic liver disease or alcoholic hepatitis. Um, tell us a little bit about that and the clinical trial that you have going on to investigate uh, some ways to, to treat, or I know you're looking at biomarkers to identify the level of disease progression. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we became very much interested in alcoholic hepatitis. So this is a, uh, this is a liver disease caused by excessive alcohol intake. And typically it happens in people who drink alcohol excessively for a, for a kind of sustained period of time. This can happen in people who don't have any chronic liver damage like cirrhosis and just uh, freshly developed this acute state of inflammation. So the acute alcoholic hepatitis is characterized by an acute state of inflammation, not only the liver, but systemically, and also with people turning jaundice. So kind of yellow, that yellowing of the eye and the skin can happen. And once people uh, present with this sort of symptom complex that, that constitutes for the acute alcoholic hepatitis, the mortality of this condition kind of dying from this is somewhere between 30% uh, to, to uh, 80% likelihood. Wow, and that's within that one month of diagnosis? Yes, so which means that one, within one month of diagnosis, there is about a 30 to 80% chance of dying depending mm. on the severity of this condition. So if you really think about it, this is kind of a really, really uh, bad diagnosis because some of the stage four cancers don't have this extent of, of, of uh, mortality. And the most um, striking component for this is that in spite of the severity of the disease, we really don't have good therapies. Uh, we give patients uh, steroids 
with the idea that that can uh, reduce inflammation, but the steroids have a moderate benefit and it, the benefit of the steroids is only a short-term survival and not a longer-term survival of these patients. So for that reason, we, we are very interested in understanding the disease at the mechanistic level from the standpoint of, of what cells are playing a role and what kind of signal transduction pathways play a role here. And from those studies, we identified that this intracellular inflammation triggering um, receptor complex that's called inflammasome plays a crucial role in sustaining inflammation. And it uh, turns out that this the inflammasome uh, plays a very important role in processing some of these, uh, some of the cytokines, particularly interleukin-1, mm -hmm. that uh, plays a role in, in perpetuating inflammation Interleukin-1 can also increase hepatocytes to die from various stress signals. Um, IL-1 also um, has a negative effect on liver regeneration. That is a key element in recovery from alcoholic hepatitis. And IL-1 also increases the fibrotic process. So for that reason, we uh, hypothesized that by blocking IL-1 could be beneficial in alcoholic hepatitis. And years ago performed studies using a um, IL-1 receptor antagonist recombinant protein called anakinra, uh, which happens to be a drug that is approved by FDA for rheumatic diseases. Mm. So in a mass model of alcoholic hepatitis, we actually were able to rescue mice from this alcoholic hepatitis. Wow. And, um, and then uh, through a grant application that was submitted and, and now supported by the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, uh, we, are in, we are performing a multi-center clinical trial in patients with severe alcoholic hepatitis to test the efficacy and the safety of intervention with this IL-1 receptor antagonist Anakinra. Mm, wow. We are very excited about this because this really is a kind of perfect example of translational research that in our laboratory we were able to identify a, a biological molecular pathway that uh, then in a preclinical animal model, we were able to target and show efficacy and now bringing that to a clinical trial in human patients. And in, the, in an earlier small study that was already completed, we found that uh, this um, administration of the IL-1 receptor antagonist was safe in these patient populations. And the reason why it's very important because this is a patient population that, as I mentioned earlier, is immunosuppressed to a certain extent from alcohol. Right. So it, right. Becomes so it kind of brings a, it all together. Right. Yeah. So we were, you know, we were very nervous at the beginning that by inhibiting inflammatory pathways, mm -hmm. are we going to uh, potentially increase the rate of infection and susceptibility of infection in these patients? And the good news is that no, we 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 didn't see any difference in the in the infection rate uh, between those who receive standard of care compared to the IL-1 receptor antagonist. So we are very. Um, uh, optimistic and 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 uh, certain the studies are still ongoing uh, to to find out the biological effects uh, because uh, it's definitely there is a very clear need for some new drugs for this patient population. So we are very excited about the the uh, further exploration of 
inhibiting IL-1 in alcoholic hepatitis. And it turns out that, that one of the large pharmaceutical companies that has an anti-IL-1 blocking antibody um, also started a large clinical trial in Europe in patients with alcoholic hepatitis to, to test their own um, uh, drug. Mm. Uh, so it's gonna be very interesting uh, because there are some differences between that particular trial that inhibits IL-1 beta as opposed to the trial that we are conducting with the anakindra because it turns out that anakindra blocks the receptor and therefore blocks the um, effects of both IL-1 alpha and IL-1 beta so, um, mm. you know, there might be differences, right. but uh, certainly we're going to find that from the clinical trials. Wow, that's really exciting. And do you know when the European trial is ending? Are your two trials running concurrently or is there a gap there? So the European trial might be completed sooner than our current clinical trial mm. here in the U.S., um, the NIH-supported trials tend to be a little slower, and <laughs> certainly the COVID pandemic didn't help our enrollment. You also asked about biomarkers. Yeah. So part of our, our kind of uh, multi-center clinical trial is alcoholic hepatitis patient population. We also have an uh, aim to look for new biomarkers mm-hmm. uh, for um, that, that would be essentially a, a liquid biopsy sort of approach to mm-hmm learn more about predictors of disease and predictors of response to therapy. And in that uh, area, we are doing various studies on on proteomic analysis and microRNAs in particular as potential biomarkers in this patient population. Interestingly, we also found that, that alcohol increases the production of extracellular vesicles particularly exosomes that are are tiny uh, vesicles that contain unique biological information from damaged cells. And uh, that's another line of investigation for us to identify the cargo of these extracellular vesicles, particularly exosomes with respect to protein uh, cargo and microRNA cargo. Um, So uh, those studies are ongoing. Mm. So I want to ask you about sort of your role. Uh, You know, we introduced you as chief academic officer. Um, You're obviously very interested in research, and that's the focus of your career. Um, And you're also now in a senior leadership role. You serve as a mentor to many different people. Um, What do you, what would you say what would you say that you bring to your role as, as a physician scientist who has been you know, deep in research for uh, as many years as you have? Um, so I, I was excited to, to take on this chief academic officer role at BIDMC because I thought it kind of brings together the various lines of, of experiences I had throughout my career as a physician scientist and also as a leader. So before I came here, I was uh, the director of the MD-PhD MSTP program at UMass that essentially is is the training of physician scientists. And and that was a tremendous opportunity 
to uh, not only just to build a program, but to really work with our MD-PhD students who then hopefully become uh, you know, successful independent investigators and, and physician scientists at various institutions around the country. Um, so this educational kind of appreciation for the education opportunities for physician scientists is definitely something that, that I have uh, long roots in and, and certainly I'm advocate for. So I believe that in my role here at BIDMC, um, where I oversee research as well as um, educational activities, uh, we, we are interested in potentially establishing a a training pathway that would particularly help those who are physicians but want to be more involved in research to launch them on a, a career at the phase of uh, postgraduate training. Um, I also served as a vice chair for a large department of medicine before I came to BIDMC. And in that role, I was very much involved in, in uh, recruiting new scientists and also supporting our existing scientists with uh, you know, various core resources such as core facilities, identifying new methodologies that could, should be established at the institution to, to enhance the um, kind of uh, technological repertoire of our researchers. And, and these are certainly areas that I'm involved in now. Um, I've been in this position for 18 months, and then uh, we, um, back in, in November, we completed a long process of, of strategic planning for BIDMC. So this was our INSPIRE BIDMC plan that stands for Institutional Strategic Plan for Innovation, uh, Research, and Education. Mm. There you go. That's a good. Um, really, you and, got and the so acronym. now we, we are we are going on to the implementation of the Inspire yeah. Plan, and hopefully in the next five years we can follow the steps to expand research, uh, create unified platforms in 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 like omics technologies. That mm. was one of our our goal for the future, mm. uh, with with very strong bioinformatics support and and the various uh, you know transcriptomics uh, mix. Uh, um, genomics and 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 uh, glycomic uh, technologies to bring that all together, um, and new pilot projects and and some translational research hubs that we want to create here at BIDMC. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting because Boston has so many great research institutions. What does it feel like to be kind of leading the charge at one of the institutions in Boston where there are so many? So it's a tremendous honor and, and privilege and a tremendous pressure <laughs> to a certain extent in a good way. Um, we, we recognize the richness of the environment and, and we definitely want to build on strength of our, our um, allies and, and, and collaborators and the Harvard Medical School but that definitely, you know, this, this um, um, super environment uh, at the same time brings up the, the challenges of how to differentiate ourselves from our neighbors uh, and, and how to uh, gain uh, both local and international um, attention in a way that, that we still can um, relate to ourselves as BIDMC and don't necessarily just get uh, under the entire umbrella of the Harvard and Longwood medical area. 
Um, so, you know, part of my job is to, to uh, help the institution to increase our alliances and collaborations with, with uh, our, our uh, potential partners and, and collaborators, but at the same time, find a niche that, that would uh, make us more known and, and attractive to outside, um, you know, investigators, entities, patients, and, and, and researchers as well. Great. And just to finish up, you know, you mentioned um, earlier that when you started out studying alcohol and liver disease, um, you weren't sure if there was, you know, anything to it. There, you weren't sure if looking at alcohol and inflammation, if that was really a, a worthwhile path. But you ended up finding correlation, and it set you off on your research career. Um, and I, you know, I think it's become your passion now. What would you say to trainees or young researchers who are struggling to identify a passion or not sure um, kind of where their career is going, how to, how to find that path that they're going to, that's going to provide a research career? So, you know, I think it's a kind of tricky thing. And, and, um, I always told this to, to like MD-PhD students that, or applicants, because when you go to sort of apply for a school or a position, you have to kind of identify yourself with a particular interest. But I think particularly for graduate school and those who are at the beginning of their science career, it is very important to be open-minded and, and be open to challenges and opportunities because I think most people um, don't necessarily know. And even if you know what you like, you should have an open mind about possibilities because um, new areas could come up. And, and in, fact, in fact, you may find that um, the most uh, successful or most exciting thing is outside of your current area. And I think that's very important, particularly in, in graduate studies. To, to be willing to take on challenges. Of course, one has to be lucky and also has to be selective. And if something doesn't go to the right direction, then kind of have the courage to give it up and start something new, because I think that that could pay major dividends over time. Well, Dr. Saba, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.